Welcome back everybody, it's The Lawyer You Know, and today is our first quick recap and analysis on the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. We're gonna do our best to keep everything as compact as possible to bring you what happens each day in this Kyle Rittenhouse trial and give you our analysis about what's going on, what it means, and if it is unusual with such a high profile case. So if you're interested in this case, please make sure you like this video so we can keep bringing you Kyle Rittenhouse content. And if you're interested in anything going on legally in the news or want legal tips and tricks and things so you can know what your rights are and how to better protect yourself, make sure you subscribe to our page and keep following along with the content that we're putting out. So today was day one in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And the judge said that he expects to pick a jury in one day and there are 150 people to choose from, and they are going to select 20 jurors. So there will be jurors that are actually deliberating and making the decision, and then alternates that are dismissed at the end of the case. So how that looks in a courtroom like this with corona and everything still going on is 34 jurors, they put, you know, we'll call it the hot seat or in the box or whatever it may be that they're actually asking questions directly to. And the rest are in the background. They can still hear the questions, but they are not actively participating and listening and raising their hands for the portion of the voir dire where the judge is asking questions. This voir dire, if you had a chance to catch any of it, in the beginning was very similar to a federal voir dire, meaning the judge is asking the questions and going back and forth. In state cases, the judge will ask some very basic questions, but in this one, the judge kind of went a little bit further than is normal in a state case, but that's pretty normal in a high-profile state case, and it is akin to a federal judge acting in a federal jury selection. The only difference is, in federal court, most times, the lawyers aren't even allowed to get up and ask any questions. So when we're talking about how long this process usually takes, it's up to the judge and the lawyers to determine how quickly or slowly a voir can go. This judge seems like he's going to be fairly strict on the lawyers, keep their time pretty short to try to get this jury picked today. It's about 4 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, and the state has just completed its portion of the Vordaya. The defense is starting now, so if they work late into the night, they may be able to get this jury picked. I expect them to pick and finalize the jury tomorrow, but we'll see what happens. The day started with some technical difficulties. The judge made some jokes, tried to keep it light, played a little Jeopardy game with the potential jurors, and a lot of people were trashing him on the internet, on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it may be, because he was being so lighthearted and making these jokes. It's just, what is a judge supposed to do in that situation? He did the best thing he could, which was try to keep the mood light, try to keep the people there and pass the time, because nobody wants this to take longer than it should. So the overarching theme of jury selection is picking this jury for a two to three week trial. Both sets of lawyers ask the judge to give the jurors, potential jurors, questionnaires to answer before the trial started so they could have a chance to do some background, figure out what's going on with these jurors, maybe cut some of them for cause before they even showed up just to speed the process along. The judge denied those requests, which is again, not abnormal and all judges usually think that's the right thing to do, but most lawyers would like to have as much information as they possibly could about these potential jurors because it is such an important part of trial and many lawyers, including myself, think it is the most important part of the trial. Picking a fair and unbiased jury that will listen to the evidence, listen to the testimony that they hear just in the trial and make their final decision and their verdict based on that and nothing else. So we'll see if they get a good jury in this case. Each side will be given seven strikes throughout the process. There are two kinds of strikes, strikes for cause and strikes and preemptive strikes. Strikes for cause have to be a legitimate reason that they just cannot be a fair and unbiased juror. 
We'll talk about some jurors in this case that were struck for cause right away because they say, I can't be fair. I can't be unbiased. I was there protesting. I'm a law enforcement officer, whatever it may be. I'm flying out of the country tomorrow. I don't speak English. I um, am deaf in this year and can't follow along. Whatever it may be, those are cause strikes. Then preemptive strikes are any non-discriminatory reasons that the lawyers want to strike this witness. For instance, if they say, I think what he did was right, or I am a card-carrying member of the NRA, whatever it may be, they can say, I'm striking that person because I don't think they're going to be fair and unbiased, no matter what they say. If they say I can put all that aside and be fair and unbiased, I just don't believe him as a lawyer, so I want to strike him. There are seven of those strikes, which can be for any non-discriminatory reason. You can't do it based off race, religion, creed, things like that. So that's where we're at when this kind of begins, and the judge starts to go through his dialogue asking all of these jurors questions. And as, this is something that's very interesting and unusual in my opinion, I haven't seen it a lot in the trials that I've done, as the jurors give these answers that make them seem like they cannot be unbiased and like they're not going to be good jurors, he is letting them go immediately. He's asking the lawyers, do you have any issue with me letting this juror go? Do you have any issue with me letting this juror go? If the lawyers have no objections, he dismisses the juror right there, which you may think that's great and that moves this process along more quickly. What I say, as someone who's tried a lot of these cases and sees a lot of jurors doing anything they can to get out of jury duty, I don't like that. Because if another juror is sitting there saying, I don't want to be here, I saw why Miss Jones just got out, I'm going to say the same thing she did just so I can get excused and get out of here as quickly as possible. Most of the time we go through all the questions and at the end we meet just the lawyers and the judge and we go through and say, okay, juror number one, 1733, they're struck for cause. Juror two, eight, and nine, they're struck for cause. Juror number 10 and 11 is preemptory, whatever it may be, but the jurors don't hear us strike them. So they don't know why. And a lot of times the judge will tell the lawyers at a sidebar privately, just ignore juror number two. We all know she's going to get struck for cause. Don't ask her any more questions. We don't want to poison the jury pool. So it was very, and the reason we do that is so other jurors don't catch on and say, oh, I'm going to get out for the same reason. So it was very interesting to see the judge do that. Now, the judge did a good job of controlling it as much as he could, and it didn't seem like a ton of jurors did that, although there were quite a few struck for cause right in the beginning. And here are just some of the reasons that they were struck for cause. Age-related reasons they couldn't pay attention. Deaf in one ear. Biased. Admitting that they were biased for one side or the other. Now, what was interesting is they did not want to, the, the lawyers and the judge did not want to go into which side they were biased towards. Just the fact they were biased, they couldn't be impartial, struck for cause. Either the actual juror was involved in law enforcement or a family member or close friend was. They knew either one of the witnesses or the lawyers or the judge or the law enforcement officers involved in this case, and that makes them not be able to be a fair and unbiased juror. Some of them had kids or jobs or scheduling conflicts that they absolutely could not sit on this jury for two to three weeks, and their mind would be elsewhere, and they would be thinking about their kid or their job or whatever their responsibilities were that absolutely nobody else could have helped them with during this time period. Therefore, they could not sit here and focus on this case. A European vacation was planned at the end of the week and somebody was flying out. The judge made a nice joke, um, kept things light and said, oh, where are you going? Great, have fun. Go ahead and walk out the door. Another lady said she would pass out from the medication that she was taking. She would just fall asleep. If the lawyers just kept talking and talking, she would likely just fall asleep. Some others tried to add to that anxiety and other issues. Now, there were some times where the judge said, I'm going to let you stay for examination, which I think that lady with the medication was one where the judge said that. I'm going to let the lawyers ask you questions and determine whether or not they think you could be a good juror for this case, even though they know about this medical issue or this medication that may cause an issue with your ability to pay attention. So as the judge was asking these questions, he was doing everything he could 
to try to get these jurors to say, put whatever it is aside that you know about this case. He didn't even try to say, so who here hasn't heard about this case here in this county where it happened? Everybody's heard about the case. Everybody's seen the news. Everybody's watched something live streamed. Some people said they couldn't be fair and unbiased based on what they saw on a Facebook live stream or on YouTube, which I thought was interesting because they're listening to the news. They're listening to the pundits. They hear these angled and biased stories by all the news stations and they get so sucked into one side or the other that they can't be fair and unbiased. So the judge ended up letting a few of them go, but he did everything he could to rehabilitate them as we say in the law and say, even though you watch this news station, even though you heard this live stream, even though you heard somebody break down this case and give you their opinion, they don't know the evidence. They don't know what's gonna come out in trial. They're not sitting here. They're not the person chosen to make this decision. Can you put that aside and listen to the evidence in this case and make a decision being fair and unbiased just off this evidence? Can you do that? So he was able to rehabilitate some of these potential jurors, but not all of them. And it's an interesting thing when the judge does it, it's a lot easier. Everybody sees the judge as the king of the courtroom, unbiased. He's just here doing his job. Sometimes it's harder for the lawyers to do that. And the prosecutors get to go first. They get to go first here. They get to go first in opening statements. They get to go first in their witnesses. Their case in chief is first because they have the burden. So the prosecutor gets up to start asking his questions. And I thought it was very interesting that the prosecutor starts out by mentioning the murder of Jacob Blake and the protests that followed, which is exactly how we kind of got in this situation. What was also interesting is he said the words, protest, riots, arson, disorderly conduct in the streets. And he differentiated the right, the constitutional right of assembly and to protest. And he asked, does anybody have a problem with that generally? Does anybody have a problem that people would do that, that they would exercise their constitutional right? And then he said, does everyone realize that's very different than going in the streets and committing crimes like riots and arson and disorderly conduct and things like that. He also said, can everyone here agree that human life is more valuable than property? And he's setting up the fact that while some of these alleged victims may have been destroying property, none of them were hurting anybody. And the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse took a life with a fatal, you know, not self-defense, but fatal action was putting human life below property and that's just not right and that's not how America is and that's not how self-defense works. So he's setting that up in Vordire. He didn't say all that, just as a lawyer, he's setting that up and he's trying to set the stage and set the mindset and mind frame of these potential jurors to think, okay, so they may have been you know, destroying property, but they weren't hurting people. They did not deserve to die. It was not a justified killing. That's the case that the prosecutors are trying to set up in Vordire. So a lot of these people were involved with the businesses and people and churches and things that happened in this area and property that may have been destroyed or affected or people's lives or safety that may have been destroyed or affected by some of these protests or what the prosecutors called riots, arson, things like that. So he asked the question, did anybody protect themselves or their business? And there were a lot of hands raised about it affected my church property or affected my friend's business or my business, or I went out and bought a gun just around this time. I never owned a gun before just to protect myself. There was one witness or a potential juror that said, I had a family member go down and I didn't want my son to go down there for his safety. So a lot of concern. This, these people live in this area where this happened. They're not like me in Florida sitting back and watching and being like, wow, I can't imagine what that must have been like. They were going through it. They were living through it. Just like a lot of the people affected in this trial. So they're going to be able to be in that mindset. And they're, even though it's the golden rule, you can't say to a juror as a lawyer, how would you feel? What would you do if you were in the defendant's shoes or the alleged victim's shoes? But that's what these jurors are going to do. And how could they not?
These are the people of this county, of this state, of this community that went through this. And it was clear throughout these uh, jury questions that they were given. So after a lot of the questions about could you be fair and unbiased based on um, what's going on in the news and whether or not these people were protesting or rioting or whatever it may be, the big question that I thought got the, got the most reaction out of the jurors is, is anybody here worried about any close family members or friends being mad at them about what their potential verdict may be if they sat on this jury? And a lot of hands went up. One woman said, I don't even care what my friends think, but my husband, I don't know if I can go back home depending on what my verdict is. And the prosecutor said, well, I don't want to cause a divorce. And she didn't think it was very funny. And she ended up getting very upset to where the judge had to stop the defense attorney who was able to step up and ask her some questions before they struck her because the prosecutor asked to just let her go. And the defense attorney wanted to ask some questions first, which you're allowed to do before someone's let go if you might have an objection to that. And it sounded like the defense attorney wanted to dig in some more, but she was getting upset and the judge stopped it and said, let's move on to the next one. We'll come back to her later. So this was touching nerves. And you can imagine, I have friends on both sides of the aisle. I have friends that feel very passionately about both sides of this trial, that feel it should go one way or the other. And I can understand if I was sitting on this jury, how that might come into play. Am I going to upset my mom or my grandma or my friend or my colleague or my boss or my employee? Let me know in the comments if that's something that would be a hang up for you. Would you be worried? Because your friends are going to know if you're on this juror. The world might not know. They were calling them by the numbers, but for, I think, one slip up today where they said a juror's um, name when they asked, do, do any of you jurors know each other? But if you were on this jury, your colleague, your friend, obviously your boss, because you're going to have to ask out of work for two or three weeks, is going to know you're on this jury. And let's say it comes back guilty and your boss feels strongly against that. Let's say it comes back not guilty and your boss feels strongly against that. Would that affect your ability to be a fair and impartial juror in this case? That's something you have to think about. And that's something we lawyers have to vet out in this case because we can't have any other outside influence affecting a juror's verdict. The only thing the verdict should be based on is the evidence and testimony they hear, and testimony is evidence, that they hear at this trial. Not any news articles, not anything anybody else was saying. So that's really important. And when one person said, I talk to my sister every day, there's no way I wouldn't be able to talk to her about this. The judge actually threatened sequestration of the jury, which means, and the judge said, no phones, no TV, no internet, isolation. So he threatened her with this sequestration, which in my opinion was not a great idea and was not maybe proper for the judge to use that power and wield it against a real potential bias, a real potential chance this person could not be a fair juror, because that's what we're trying to determine as lawyers. Now, we get it. Everybody wants to get off a jury most of the time, especially if it's two or three weeks, especially if half the world's going to hate you, depending on what your verdict is. We get that. So we want the best jurors to be there. But I don't think we can threaten potential rulings on motions against jurors to try to get them to answer certain ways. Because just because she answers that she's not going to talk to her sister doesn't mean she's actually not going to talk to her sister. And she even said, sorry, I'm just trying to be honest with you. And the judge said, well, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what we want. We want you guys to be honest. But the alternative, if you can't not talk to your sister, is I'll just have to sequester you. And he hasn't made that decision yet. So it's kind of a weird thing to threaten. And now is he saying he's not going to if everybody agrees not to talk to their family? To me, it was just a little improper. I wouldn't have done it if I'm a judge, but I'm not a judge. So maybe he did with the right thing. Let me know what you guys think in the comments. So the prosecutor ended after getting a few more struck for cause and they got them replaced with the other jurors that were sitting there. And how it works is 
If you're a replacement juror and you're juror number 54 coming to be added to this 34 because somebody got cut, the 34 that are in the box or in the hot seats at this point, the judge just says, would you have an answer to any of those questions that have been asked before that would be objectionable? Talk about it now or let us know now. So if you have a family issue or if you have a bias issue, if you have a scheduling issue, let us know. And you're supposed to remember all those questions. So I have a feeling that if any issues arise, it's going to be some from those replacement and refill jurors, not the ones that were actually there the entire time in that first 34. And it seems like, you know, we don't want any runaway juries or any, you know, plants in the jury for one side or the other, but it seems like it'd be pretty easy to stick on this jury right now because the ones that want off are making it very obvious that they're biased or they have an issue and they want off. So if you really want to get on this jury, at this point, it seems pretty easy. It's harder when the jur- when the lawyers go individually through each juror, which is what I usually do when I pick a jury. Now, unless the judge tells me I can't, which I've had judges rush me through jury selection sometimes, but I like to ask, you know, this row right here, row one, how many of you think this? And I say, Ms. Jones, talk a little bit more about that. Does anybody agree with Ms. Jones in this row? Then I go to row two, row three, and I try to hit every single juror because I want to pick out if anybody's trying to get on this jury to really blow it up for me and not do a good job and slant it one way or the other. And I think that's really important. None of the lawyers and none of us as a society should want that. We should want fair and impartial jurors. But it's really hard to do when you do it on such a huge scale where you're just asking a full room. Anybody think this? Because if somebody's shy or quiet, they're not going to give you their opinion. That can make you very nervous as a lawyer. So that's a recap of most of day one. We'll continue watching um, what the defense does in Vordire. Let me know if you have any questions specifically about Vordire in the comments because I'm going to hit it a little bit in our next video as we're going to touch on what the defense does in Vordire. Hopefully we get opening statements done. Maybe we'll get to some witnesses by the next time, but I'm going to try to do as quick of a recap as I can each day. And maybe if there is time once a week, I'll try to do a live if you guys want to. If you post live in the comments, I will see if there's time that we can get together at a time for a live where I can answer your questions on the spot that you have about this trial and about this process. But again, as I said, if you have any questions you want me to answer in these daily updates, post them in the comments and I'll get to as many of them as I can. So until day two, that's all we have for you. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.